My name is Rob Hilsenroth. I'm a veterinarian, although I haven't practiced since 1991. I'm currently the executive director of the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians. Hello, I'm John Rossi. I'm a touring drummer with a passion for animal conservation. When I'm on the road, I spend as much time as possible visiting zoos, aquariums, and conservation organizations. Now, I want to share those places with you. I'll be talking to keepers, vets, conservationists, anyone who can help me in my mission of connecting my people to animals through their people. Join me on my raw safari. Hello, 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 and welcome back to the Rasafari Podcast. Y'all, this is a really interesting episode with a lot of really cool stories, and it's also the birth of an idea that um, is currently being worked on and I'm really excited about. Uh, I think uh, I, along with my guest, uh, Dr. Rob, have found a really interesting way to impact uh, the animals of the world, and you're going to hear about it in this episode. And I will let you discover that in the interview. But um, what I will tell you is that the work is being done, things are being figured out, and I'm really, really, really excited about this whole thing. And I also want to say a huge thank you uh, to my friend and listener, Kristen Khalil, who uh, helped me birth this idea. Uh, it's it's just very cool, and, and I'm really excited. So uh, you will hear more about that in the episode. Uh, but first, I need to remind y'all to uh, make sure you're following along at Raw Safari on the socials. Make sure you hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. And um, also, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can do so for as little as $3 a month by going to patreon.com slash Safari. And that's really all I have to say about it. You've uh, heard who I'm speaking to. I've given you a little little taste of what's to come. So let's get to my interview with Dr. Rob Hilsenroth of the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians. This is uh, a relationship that we've had for a little while now because um, of the Wild Animal Health Fund as well. And so I'm really excited to to finally have you on the podcast. Um, I, before we get into your history, I, I just have to say I, I remember so well being at the um, AZA conference this year and seeing you and running up to you so excited <laughs> and being like, Rob, how are you? And I think there was a second where you were a little afraid I might tackle you and then you recognized me. I don't know, but sorry about my enthusiasm. But. Uh, it's good. Good to have enthusiasm. <laughs> but yeah, so tell me like your history. How did you get into the idea of being a vet? And, um, you know, did you always love animals? Yeah, I always have. And I, I, I owe it mainly to my mother who allowed me to keep uh, to be the, the quote doctor in the neighborhood for the birds that fell out of the nest, the squirrels that fell out of the nest, you know, any animal like that that came along. And um, so ever since I was knee high to a duck, I wanted to be a veterinarian. Um, I uh, uh, followed that. I mean, I just, there was no question um, in my mind. And um, of course, initially, I wanted to be a small animal veterinarian because that's all I knew, basically. And um, uh, so I did, I was raised in Bethesda, Maryland, outside of D.C., and um, I didn't uh, have any experience with large animals. And so coming out of high school, we have friends of the family that have a ranch in Oklahoma. 
So I did my pre-veterinary work at Oklahoma State University because I could work on their ranch on the weekends and find out what a cow looked like and what a horse looked like and what they really <laughs> were. Um, and uh, three years of pre-vet and then went to vet school at the University of Georgia. Back then, um, Georgia took students from uh, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia. And if you weren't from one of those states, there was only one other veterinary school that took um, students from outside of that state, and that was Michigan State University. At any rate, went to veterinary school at Georgia, graduated in 1971, uh, went back to Maryland for a year and practiced in a very busy small animal practice outside of Baltimore. Um, but I told the uh, my employer – about the second week I was there, I said, well, I, I've signed a contract for a year, but I'm leaving it at the end of the year and I'm moving to Colorado. Um, earlier, when I was in middle school, a boyfriend of mine and I went to the Boy Scout ranch in Cimarron, New Mexico called Philmont. Yeah, um, so I'm an Eagle Scout and oh, I never made it to Philmont, oh. but I wanted to so badly. That's so cool. Oh, yeah, it was great. Great, great, great. Actually, I went two summers uh, nice. there, but uh, I made a vow with my friend, uh, with Jim, saying that if we ever grow up, we're going to live in Colorado. So he preceded me by a year or two and uh, moved out to Colorado. Did relief work for a while and then opened a small animal practice. Um, did that for 19 years. And then uh, during that period of time, I had been um, worked for, uh, I'd gone through the ranks with the Den Denver Area Veterinary Medical Association. And uh, during the year that I was president, we had a disease called parvovirus come along. Okay, yeah. And um, it was, we didn't know much about it. And um, I ended up going to the American Veteran Medical Association meeting that summer. This was would have been in uh, 1979, I believe, <clears throat> or 80. And came back, and I told the media was starting to ask questions. And as president of the Denver Veteran Medical Society, we, I said, look, I'm going to this meeting. I'll get all the information that we can get on it, and we'll have a news conference when I get back. And what happened was um, during the time I was gone, there was a case that, that was diagnosed in Denver, and the veterinarian called the media, and so all the media covered this. And, you know, it was horrible. Parvovirus, for those who don't know, it causes horrible bloody diarrhea. And most back then, most dogs died from it. Right. We didn't have a vaccine for it. So long story short, I get back and say, okay, I, I know it's moving from the East Coast to the West. It's moving from the West Coast to the East, and it's going to get here late August or September. And they said, well, we've already done that story. <laughs> and I said, but wait, we, there's a lot more to it. And I couldn't get the media's attention. So oh, wow. toward the end of uh, August, we, when it hit, um, we started surveying veterinary hospitals in the Denver metro area, and it wasn't until we had about 900 dogs die a week Whoa. that we got the the attention of the media, and, and we could give some pet health tips like don't feed your dog outside because flies are carrying it from, you know, dog, dog two houses down, has bloody diarrhea, flies land on that, come onto your dog's food, and your dog's going to get part of it. Long story short, after that, I was encouraged to do work with the media, and uh, it took about five years to finally land a position, but I ended up as the ABC affiliate back then, uh, Channel 9, KUSA-TV, 
uh, hired me as their pet health expert. Okay. And so I'd come down once a week to the station, initially started out on a, on a news set, answering call-in questions. Um, that ended kind of abruptly after, when you do radio, and you know this, when you do radio, there's a delay, about a seven-second delay, right. and, you, and you can push the dump button if, if something is said that's inappropriate. Right, right, yeah. In television, it doesn't work that way, or it didn't back then. And uh, some guy that we had a screener and a guy, a guy gets on the line and now, you know, we've got the TV on full face in the television camera. And uh, the guy says I, his question that he told the screener was he had, dog has a tick and he wants to know how to remove it. But when he got live with me, it was the dog, dog has a tick on his dink. Oh no! How to remove it? And so, of course, the two anchors are just laughing at themselves, <laughs> silly. How is Doctor Rob going to answer this question? From that, we went to where we were. I would do. Um, um, I would go out and do packages like how to build a doghouse for Colorado, or how to trim your dog's nails, or you know those kind of things. And um, so, at any rate, I did that. That led to the one of the radio stations, um, KOA. Um, asking me to be do a program, an Ask the Vet program on the weekends. And so I did that for quite a few years. And then the newspaper wanted me to write a column. So I had all – while I'm in practice, I get all this other experience with the media. In 1991, Morris Animal Foundation um, decided they needed a staff veterinary spokesperson. So um, they did an advertisement in the AVMA Journal looking for a veterinarian with television, radio, public speaking, and writing experience. And I thought, this kind of has my name on it. So, <laughs> And they were local. They were headquartered in Denver. So I applied for that job, got it, sold the practice. It became, 10 months after I got there, became their executive director and had a wonderful, wonderful career with Morris Animal Foundation. They fund research for dogs, cats, horses, and wildlife. They've, they were founded in 1948. And um, uh, it's, it's a, we used to say it's the NIH for um, the zoo animals and wildlife because they had a zoo and wildlife um, division. Um, I retired in 2004, moved down to Florida here, Bought my sailboat, nice, which, which was uh, yeah, really nice. Enjoying retirement, and then these darn zoo vets started twisting my arm. <laughs> and bottom line was, uh, Rob, you've got all this experience in managing and running a not for profit. Uh, you can't just let that fade in the sunset. You owe us. And so <laughs> I ended up applying for the job and got it. And and uh, uh, I've been there ever since. So. Nice. Very cool. So what is the AAZV? To people who are listening who maybe don't fully know that, what, what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians. It is a membership association, just like, you know, there's there be an American Association of Dairy Farmers or American Association of Bricklayers or whatever. So it's a membership association of people that like-minded people. Um, there are two main things that we do is we produce the Journal of Zoo and Wildlife Medicine, which is a refereed scientific journal that comes out quarterly. And um, it's the go-to journal for um, current information about um, zoo and wildlife, uh, zoo animals and wildlife. And you'll find it all over the world. It's also the official journal now of the European Association of Zoo and Wildlife Veterinarians. Nice. So their members get uh, access to the journal also. 
Um, that's one of the things we do. The other big thing we do is we have an annual conference, continuing education conference. It's been said that um, in medical professions, in seven years, half of what you knew seven years ago is obsolete information. Makes sense. Yeah. And, yeah. So you've got to keep up. And continuing education is the name of the game. And so we produce a conference every year. It's um, actually seven days long. Uh, two days of workshops and wet labs and five days of didactic lectures. And it's, um, it's very well attended. About half of our membership attends every year. They can't all go every year because the, the, you know, the zoo has to have somebody. Right. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. But um, at any rate, the, 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 if you're practicing zoological medicine, you you can go to the state veterinary medical association meeting for continuing education meeting or the american veterinary medical association or western states or whatever but you're probably not going to learn how to do a liver biopsy on a rhinoceros at those meetings <laughs> and uh, at our conference of course we you know the veterinarian walks in in the morning and she or he's going to do everything from hummingbird up to elephant and everything in between and uh, so they do need that continuing education. Yeah, no, that's that makes a lot of sense. And I'm curious, um, you know, you haven't been practicing for a while now, but you're in charge of this organization that is um, in charge of helping zoo vets stay up to date with everything. So how important is that for you personally? Do you keep up with everything or do you just let the people who are keeping up with stuff, you know, run that side? <laughs> when I get questions from neighbors about, you know, Rob, can you take a look at my dog? I, my comment is that a dead dog would be in bad shape in my hands. I, <laughs> it's been a long time. And, you know, very honestly, so many drugs, people ask me about a drug that I've never heard of and that kind of thing. I keep up a little bit. I'm, you know, I just, you know, just enough to be dangerous to, you know, stay on the <laughs> sidelines. But what's great about it is we have our membership is extremely devoted to doing the, the, as an example for the conference, they, they, um, the scientific program committee, they evaluate all the submissions for people who want to do uh, presentations. We usually have about 110 to 115 presentations in that week-long period. Um, they evaluate them for scientific soundness and for relevancy and what have you, and they, they plan them. So the people who are actually in the field uh, do that work and, and, uh, they uh, they facilitate it and make sure that it's the best quality continuing education that we can give. Nice. That's really cool. Uh, where Where is the next conference going to be? The next conference is in Nashville. Ooh, all right. In this uh, in September. Um, we usually have a zoo host us for, for the uh, conference. And on the Tuesday of the conference, so we, we have workshops and wet labs on Friday and sa on Saturday and Sunday. And then we start the didactic lectures on Monday. But on Tuesday, a um, little afternoon, we'll break and then head over to the zoo. And what the zoo does is they open their doors to everybody with a name badge, you know, who's registered for the conference. Um, to, they open their doors to the behind-the-scenes stuff. And so there's a tremendous amount of talk between curators and keepers and zoo veterinarians and technicians and what have you. And... So a zoo veterinarian here at Jacksonville might go over and say, hey, we're working on a new manatee um, um, enclosure. Um, show me how you do yours. What, how did you handle this part of it and that part of it? So that in itself is continuing education. 
Um, but then, uh, and we move around to different places every year. Last year we were in Houston. Um, in 2024, we'll be in Toronto, Ooh, 2025, nice. Kansas City, and we don't know yet where we'll be in 26, but uh, it'll be somewhere around. Yeah, that's very cool. I like that a lot. I um, I appreciate it. I know when we first uh, met and talked, you had mentioned um, that, you know, it, it would be a good opportunity for me to come down and, and bring Zoe, who's working on becoming a zoo vet, and uh, do the conference. And unfortunately, I had gigs this last year, but um, September's pretty open, and I like Nashville. So, Sounds great. Yeah, you need to be there. Let's make that happen. So this um, is an official um, invitation for you to come as our guest. Appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, I think that'll be a blast. We'll make that happen. Um, and yeah, so ah, I love, I, I love this whole concept, especially because I know something that we've talked about with wild animal health fund, uh, episodes before is that the problem that faces <clears throat> zoo vets is that there's a ton of animals, like different taxa involved. You have to know all of them, but there's also a very limited amount of research done and there aren't these companies out there doing research. You know, if you can create new drugs for dogs, you can become a millionaire. If you create a new drug for a red panda, it's not going to be as profitable. You know, there are a couple hundred in America and that's it. Um, see, the dogs got excited when I said there yeah. could be new drugs for dogs. <laughs> Um, but so uh, does, do you think that AAZV really helps to like, are, is this organization the reason that all those vets are able to learn from each other and stuff? And that's, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's the bottom line. So let's go way back historically, since man domesticated animals, um, they started doing uh, management research and all this and that. Um, but it, starting about two or three hundred years ago, we started doing a lot of research on dairy cattle, beef cattle, sheep, goats, chickens, you know, animals that, that had economic value to us because they were, of course, in the food chain. Um, and there wasn't much research done on anything else. Um, then starting in about the 1940s, um, we started realizing that dogs were becoming companion animals and cats they weren't just the barn you know the guard dog for the farm and the cats weren't just the barn cats to kill the rodents and what have you uh, they were coming inside now and becoming companion animals and so we started doing research all the veterinary schools and places like morris animal foundation started funding that research but it there was nobody who's been championing um, the cause for, you mentioned red pandas. So let's say something like diabetes and red pandas. Um, who, it, it, this sounds horrible, but it's like almost who cares? Well, I can tell you all of the zoo veterinarians, the curators, the, you know, the people in who are involved with, with uh, saving the species, we all care about it. And it's very, very difficult to find funding to do the research. So, it, I mean, it, it's – and we're way behind. Two reasons for that. Number one, well, we've got so many taxa, as you mentioned, uh, to, to learn about. I mean, start with corals and jellyfish. and or They're not jellyfish. They're called jellies. Right. Now. Yes, yes. <laughs> jellies and, and uh, marine mammals and um, sea turtles. And go then go up into the mammalians and even the the non invertebrate animals that people uh, you know that that are endangered 
Um, there's just not a lot of information. Um, we've got so many of these animals and very little information about all of them. When the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians started in 1964, the, um, it was just a group of veterinarians at the American Veterinary Medical Association meeting that asked for some time to meet together. And what they did is, to be a member, you had to bring a paper, a one-page sheet of paper about a case that you had. And hopefully, with some um, scientific data on normal values, blood values, and, and so that's really how we kind of started sharing that information. Now, one of the things we do, we have a very active listserv. And um, so a zoo veterinarian can come in in the morning and you've got a scimitar horned oryx. It's got a big lump on its shoulder and you've never seen this before and all. You can put, put that out on the listserv. And within, I'm going to say minutes, but for sure within a half an hour or an hour, You'll have responses from maybe one of the zoo veterinarians at, at San Diego Zoo Global that might have 15 of these oryxes or uh, wildlife conservation society. So, so they're helping each other out and sharing that information um, on a daily basis. Yeah, that's really cool. That was actually, it's kind of funny. That's, it's a great lead in because my next question was going to be, um, and, and still will be, but um, how has technology uh, advanced the cause of, of AAZV? I'm, I'm going to start with just communication. Um, I think that, uh, you know, I, when I got out of veterinary school, we had fax machines. Nice, nice. <laughs> uh, mimeograph machines. Um, and, you know, it's come such a long way. Um, we have a, uh, a, one of our membership categories um, is for veterinarians who are, in, are in de from developing nations and working in developing nations. And um, our, our regular fee for membership, um, either in Europe or North America, full member, is some, a little under $300, $290, something like that. But if you're a veterinarian from a developing nation in a developing nation, it's $7.50. Wow. And for that, you get all of these communication things. You can use the listserv. You can, of course, get in on any uh, on webinars that we ha host, um, Zoom calls for Zoom or whatever platform you're using, um, calls that people are using. And, um, uh, you know, it's just like, and you know this, it's like being in the next room, with, being in the same room with someone. Yeah. You can ask questions, you can show things with sharing your screens. And I, I think the technology has come a long, long way to advance um, zoological veterinary medicine, zoo and wildlife veterinary medicine. Nice. Great. Um, and kind of tagging along with that question, how innovative do zoo vets have to be? Oh. Extremely, extremely innovative. Um, just as an example, um, <clears throat> if you, in a small animal practice, um, let's say a dog unfortunately breaks a leg and you have to do um, an internal fixation with it, but then you have pins coming out and all you've seen pictures of these kind of things. And you can dress that dressing, that wound every day. You can take the bandage off flush out any necrotic tissue, put new bandaging on, um, and do that. You get a zoo animal that has the same kind of a situation. 
you're going to get your hands on that animal to do a surgical procedure. You might not be able to touch him again. You can't risk anesthetizing him every day. And you might, uh, you might, it might be a week before you can, can touch him. So you've got to be really, really innovative. Um, the example I, I give you is from a, a veterinarian who was at, uh, at the time was at SeaWorld. And I was doing a story about some of the research that, that they were doing. And they were um, trying to get diagnostic information about right whales, which are fairly, pretty endangered. Oh, yeah, very. And uh, so he invented, Mike Walsh is his name, he invented this, this rig where they go out in a small boat, maybe 12 feet or 14 feet long, with an outboard engine. And it's got a, a machine in the middle, of, sitting in the middle of the boat. And then he's got a, about a 15-foot aluminum pole. And at the end of that pole is an upside-down funnel. All right. And coming out of that funnel is a tube that comes to this vacuum pump that's in the boat, right? They can come up beside the whale, just cruise along right beside the whale. And when the whale exhales, they suck in... <laughs> The, the, the air that's coming out of this whale, and then they can analyze it for all kinds of things. They can get DNA. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Now, that's pretty inventive to me. Yeah, that's <laughs> ridiculous. That's that's so impressive. Yeah. Um, wow. wow. That's very cool. Yeah, I think um, I, I think it's it's fascinating to me, you know, how many zoos there are out there and and how many of them, you know, have vets either – most have their own. Some have like contract vets, whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, and how brilliant those people have to be, you know. And obviously, I'm a little biased as my wife is working towards becoming a zoo vet. <laughs> but um, I just I, I can't believe there are that many people out there doing the thing, you know. Yeah, this is really it's really kind of a um, a dilemma. Um, you know that that veterinary medicine itself is having there are some issues with um, getting enough graduates in, especially in underserved areas of the country, especially for farm animals and what have you. Um, the deans at the veterinary schools tell us that about a third of the incoming students coming into veterinary school say they want to be a Zubat. Um, at the end of the day, there are only going to be a handful from that class that are there because there's only a finite number of zoos. The Association of Zoos and Aquariums has, I think, something like 230 members or member zoos and aquariums. And uh, the Zoological Association of America, ZAA, has I don't know how many. But it's not like they're building you know, like they're building gas stations on every corner. They're not, they're not building new zoos anywhere. And so it's, it's pretty difficult to get into. Um, and in addition to that, so you go to three years of pre-vet, four years of veterinary school, then you've got to do internships, residencies, and what have you for another two or three years. You can't just waltz into a zoo and say, I'm a graduate veterinarian, give me a job. Um, so you need all that um, experience um, under your belt. Um, and the, the hours are long they're and they're miserable um, because um, the, the iconic animal at your zoo that comes down with a liver ailment the day before Thanksgiving could care less that you're going to miss Thanksgiving <laughs> the day after the day after and maybe even through Christmas because you've got to be treating that animal. So it is long, long hours. 
But I think the thing that, that brings us all together as a family is that we're all after the same goal, and that's saving, um, saving endangered species, keeping, uh, slowing down the extinction, and making a better life for the animals that are in human care. A whole lot of what we learn um, about these animals when we do fund research can then be applied to native populations of the animals. So if we're having reproductive problems or whatever, and they're having them in the same with the, the same group of animals over in South America somewhere or in Africa or whatever, um, we can apply a lot of what we learn in a captive situation to those um, managed situations. And um i you know benefits to to all the animals not just the ones that are in in human care yeah no that makes a lot of sense um you mentioned the um you know the challenge of becoming a zoo vet and um i'm i'm curious i've I, you know one one thing that i like to do as i talk to different zoo vets is to ask their advice on on how to get into the field and especially you know again because i'm trying to to be a good husband um and so I'm I'm curious what your thoughts would be on about the best way to go about that. And um, like, do you think it makes sense to get some years of like normal, like cat and dog emergency vet work and stuff? And what, what would your suggested path be? Yeah. So coming out of veterinary school, you can go right into an internship, a zoo internship or residency program. And those are pretty competitive. There are a lot of people that want to get into them. And there's a whole system, and it's run through our website where you, where you, um, uh, they they figure out who's going to make you know come to what zoo for what internship or residency. And some of them are multiple institutional. So there's one at the University of Florida that's two years after after vet school, two years doing exotic animal medicine there, one year at White Oak Conservation Center, and then years ago they do an, a fourth year at uh, Disney at Animal Kingdom. Um, so there's a lot of that. However, um, you get points, so to speak, for having some experience under your belt. And when I graduated from veterinary school, I think I had done two spays, two dog spays. Um, you know, I don't know how one or two or three cat ovario hysterectomies and, you know, you don't have a whole lot of experience because there's a whole group of people, um, trying to learn the same thing. Right. And so you do really learn a lot after you get out of veterinary school. If you go into a small animal practice or a large animal practice and, um, you know, get as much experience as you can there, and then a year later or two years later get into an internship or a residency program, um, that's not going to hurt you at all. That, As a matter of fact, it'll probably help you. Cool. All right. That makes sense. Um is do you find that zoo vet jobs are something that sometimes people, uh, especially like already people that are veterinarians or whatever, pivot to a little bit later in life, or is it like something that they're always passionate about, or does everyone just have their own story? Yeah, I, uh, to some extent, everybody has their own story, but I think the vast majority of them come right out of vet school. They they go into vet school saying I want to be a zoo vet or wildlife vet, and they come out of vet school saying the same thing. Many of them. And so they're going to pursue that for two, three, four, five, six years, whatever it takes. I think then as they get um, more senior, uh, what happens is they end up getting moved into more management positions in the zoos 
and they only get to put the coveralls on two days a week instead <laughs> of five days a week. And um, as a matter of fact, I was just at um, in January at the Association of Zoos and Aquariums. Um, they have a, a retreat for zoo directors that I get invited to. And um, there were 13 or 14 veterinarians at that meeting. Um, in the last year and a half, we've had four zoo veterinarians who've become directors of zoos. Wow. So I think that once they get into the to this business, um, they they really don't get out of it. Um, you know, they and many of them die with their boots on. They, uh, <laughs> they love it. They're so passionate about it. But you know, in this day and age, we're in such an accelerated rate of extinction of animals. Um, there have been mass extinctions before the ice ages. Um, the asteroid that hit and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But there's never been one that's been accelerated going as fast as it's going. And it seems a lot of it seems to be because of humans and overpopulation and all that kind of stuff. And we feel a, um, just a, a need or responsibility to do what we can about it. Right. You know, the old starfish story about, um, Little girls walking down the beach. There was a, a real big king tide the night before, and so a whole bunch of starfish stranded on the on the uh, sea stars. Actually, is yes, yes, sea stars now. Yes, stranded <laughs> on the beach, and she's walking down the beach, picking them up, throwing them back in the ocean. And there's a gentleman walking the opposite way. He comes up to her and says, "What are you doing, little girl?" And she says, um, "I'm saving these sea stars' lives." And he says, oh, my God, there are thousands of them on this beach. You can't possibly make a difference. And she looks at him. She picks one up, throws it back into the sea and says, made a difference to that one. I love that. And so all of us have this philosophy that we can do something. And there are some – we get some carrots occasionally. In 1992, um, one of the projects that the Morris Animal Foundation had – was um, the Mountain Gorilla Veterinary Project in Rwanda. Diane Fossey had predicted that they would become extinct by the year 2000. And so they ran, uh, there was the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund and then the Mountain Gorilla Veterinary Project, which is now called Gorilla Doctors. And I can remember at this meeting in 1992 where all these scientists were sitting around. And I mean, these are really intelligent people. <laughs> and talking about all, whatever we could do to try to save this species. And it seems so frustrating. And they would even say it's so frustrating. We do, you know, it, actually one of the issues was the cost of the programs, the amount of money we would spend to save one mountain gorilla. And then you look at the village around, you know, the Parc de Vacan and see the people that need medical help and what have you. You say, wait a minute, you know, are we doing the right things? But at any rate, back then, the total number of mountain gorillas was about 500, and it's over 1,000 now. Wow. So it's, it, it isn't the only thing. Mountain gorilla or gorilla doctors isn't the only thing that has advanced um, the success of the, of the program and helped save this species of animals, but it's a major player in doing it. So um that's the carrot that you occasionally get that you say you know we did make a difference here and we'll continue to make a difference here so it's it you know it's, it's worth it we're all you know um scientists 
we all have respect for and concern about the planet and what we're doing to it. And we're all doing what we can to, to try to make it a better place for the animals. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I really love that. Um, so tell me uh, uh, just maybe one or two stories from your career of, of some crazy stuff that you've seen or, or done. Gosh, I just, you know, nothing really crazy. Um, you know, as a small animal veterinarian, well, even in veterinary school, when I got into veterinary school, I was one of those kids who said, I don't, I'm sorry, more than 50% of our training back then was in large animal. I said, I'm from Bethesda, Maryland. I'm going to be a small animal veterinarian. I don't even want to mess with these cattle and these horses <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And so they would always give me the difficult animal, you know, the wild, the wild cow to milk out or something like that. But, um, uh, I think that, that, uh, I've just been so blessed to have so many experiences. Just recently, um, we had a meeting, a little strategic planning meeting for a division of our uh, of the um, American Association of Zoo Veterinarians that takes that looks after the um, all hazards that you know hurricanes and other disasters, tornadoes, floods for our zoo animals and wildlife. And um, we were invited by the veterinary staff to come treat a manatee that had been recently brought here. Nice. And um, this manatee had a, a big lesion on her back, all the way down her back. And, and twice a week, they had to take her out of the water and treat these lesions and all. And everybody got to to do the hands-on and, and actually – you know, do that. I, I just, you know, I look back at the things that I've been able to do. I was at a meeting, um, mid-year meeting with our um, executive committee in at the Tulsa, in Tulsa years ago. And we had to stop by in the evening because there was a, um, a litter of four or five lion cubs that had to be bottle fed. And so, you know, here we all are you know, feeding these, these bottle feeding these lions and, and what have you. So um, I just, um, you know, I've just been blessed to be able to get my hands on so many of these animals. It's just crazy. Um, I think one of the, another success story that, that just comes to mind, and I didn't, don't know whether you wanted to get into this or not, but we um, recognizing that um, the research is necessary and um, it has to move forward. Um, about 12 years ago, uh, I went to the board and I said, you know, um, there's only one other game in town and that was Morris Animal Foundation. They have a wildlife division and they were slowing down on the funding of wildlife. And I said, um, who better than a group of zoo veterinarians to try to raise money to fund research for zoo animals and wildlife? So we, they said, okay, and they allowed me to hire a director of development, A.D. Nicholson is her name. So she started with zero donors, zero dollars, and this year we'll be funding 250000 a year. And we're raising this money not from zoo veterinarians. They're not the best paid veterinarians, <laughs> I have to tell you. No. But from the public. And um, some family foundations and what have you. And um, we, we uh, you know, my goal is that we eventually are raising a million dollars a year for research for zoo animals and wildlife. 
So we're, we're, um, we recognize that. And what's great about it, there's a research grant committee, which is made up of nine zoo veterinarians, and they evaluate the proposals every year. Um, we just had our meeting two weeks ago in Chicago um, with the nine of them and evaluated the proposals. There'll be about 16 or 18 new proposals this year. And like I say, up to about $250,000. So um, we're, we're contributing uh, as much as we can to, to saving these animals and um, preventing animals from going extinct. Yeah. And I mean, that is, that is something I love so much. I, um, you know, I, I know about the AAZV, but like when I was first reached out to about Wild Animal Health Fund, I was blown away. I did not know this thing existed. And now mm. my listeners keep hearing about it. Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's wildly important. I am, I guess I'm a little curious or confused or maybe just don't understand how the real world works because I'm a drummer. But um, <laughs> like, so what are, is Wild Animal Health Fund part of the AAZV or is it that like a separate entity, but they're interconnected? Because yeah. I know y'all are, you know, part of both. Yeah. So, yeah. No, actually, the American Association of Zoo Veterinarians is a 501c3 registered okay. with the IRS, has been, I think we got registered in the late 80s with the IRS. So we are a 501c3. And so it's not a, the Wild Animal Health Fund is not a separate entity but we just we just named it you know and and of course all the money that comes into that is restricted to fund research for zoo animals and wildlife also should mention that every dollar donated goes to the research none of it goes to overhead um so which is the advantage of having it as a part of a's and v yeah that's really cool yeah. i didn't I, yeah i love that that's really important and and for those listening you know when you're trying to figure out where to make your donations that help animals um there are obviously lots of great causes that we talk about all the time but that's one thing that it's always good to look at is the amount of the money that you're putting in that is actually going to the cause that right. you support and uh 100 is a pretty decent number (laughs) you can't get much better than that yeah absolutely i'm curious do you ever miss the vet side of it yeah i do um i did you know when i first left practice and started working for morris animal foundation um i was hired as their staff veterinary spokesperson and about 10 months later their executive director left and they asked me to sit in as exec, interim executive director, and they hired a search firm and had a search committee. And six months later, they said, you're it. Nice. And yeah, but I was swamped. <laughs> you know, that, that's, <laughs> that was a big step. So I didn't have much time to think about practice and all that kind of stuff. And um, I, yeah, I do miss that. I miss the challenges. Um, I miss the animals. I miss most of the people. <laughs> Fair. Um, but there, you know, as with, with anything else, it's the old story of there are some people that make it pretty pretty difficult. And I, the hard part for me in, in small animal practice was um, owners that you, you couldn't stop them from having a dog or a cat, but they wouldn't take care of them. Like, you know, if you had brought this to me two weeks earlier, I could have helped you, but. Uh, oh, I have so many stories just from the last year of the stuff that's, I mean, yeah. I, yeah, no, people, people are the problem. Yeah. Not all people, but lots of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Oh, I get that. Um, but so, okay. So I, um, 
I, I know that, you know, the last time that we, we hung out, well, other than when I slightly assaulted you at um, the, the conference, um, the last time that we hung out was um, we were at White Oak. Yeah. And now we're at Jacksonville. Yes. And so how is Jacksonville as a host? And, and do you like being here? And, oh, you know. it's great. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. So we, um, we leased the land from Jacksonville Zoo, and we bought a modular um, office building. And so we've got four offices in here, and um, it's just uh, we get invited to all the stuff that the zoo is doing, and uh, there's much more exposure for us here. Of course, we're right next door to the Florida Fish and Wildlife, and um, we get along with those folks really well. Nice. And yeah, it's um, it just makes it really, really convenient. And uh, zoo vets travel around a lot, too, so... There might be an animal here at Jacksonville Zoo that needs a dental procedure that a zoo vet in Denver has expertise in. And they'll fly her here, um, you know, to do the dental procedure. But then they'll usually come over and they'll have a cup of coffee or have lunch together with them so that the staff gets to feel much more a part of zoo veterinary medicine than we would be, uh, than we were in, at White Oak. We were just a little bit isolated out there. Gotcha. Yeah, that's very cool. Yeah, it's, it's, this is a great place. I'm, I'm very pleased. So it's yeah. nice to see. Um, and then, uh, I, one other question that I had for you was, so you did a lot of media stuff yeah. as you were coming up and that kind of <clears throat> set your path. What impact do you think that work had on, on you and on like the greater community that you were reaching? Had a great impact on me. Um, of course, getting into it, uh, it was you know you're you're really nervous. We had the television audience when I initially started had about eighty thousand viewers, and uh, one of the producers called me aside the first or second time I was on the air and said, "Rob, there is one person watching one television in most cases." And so when you look into that camera, you're talking to one person, just like in your office, your veterinary office might be two people, but you're only talking to one or two people. Don't think of my high stadium filled with 80,000 people. Right, right. You're just walking, talking to one or two people. And I had great teachers at, uh, in the, uh, at Channel 9. But what became very apparent to me very quickly, veterinarians, <laughs> I'm probably going to get hate mail from a couple of them. <laughs> we are not very good communicators. Um, and I, I mean, I found myself doing the same thing. I, you know, an animal would come in and I'd fill a prescription and say, okay, give him one of these tablets three times a day. And, but I wouldn't show him how to give the tablet and I wouldn't communicate what the probabilities are, what to look for or whatever. And um, what I found is doing the the pet health tips and you know the the pet health expert at, at the TV station. Uh, what I found was that I could communicate. I could give that message to eighty thousand people at once, and help out my veterinary colleagues by explaining some of the things that we don't we just don't think about and what have you. On the radio show, after a while, I asked the producer. If I could have um, a, a specialist join me um, every week. And they said, it took them a while to finally say yes. But then so um, I would announce on, on this weekend show that next weekend we're going to have a radiologist or an ophthalmologist 
or, you know, whatever, internal medicine or a cancer expert, veterinarian. And so um, I was able to really get in-depth questions answered by using, utilizing these experts and what have you. And I really think, I think that, um, you know, I used to get angry at some of the things that, that I would see with some of the animals that were what I had considered neglect, but they actually were ignorance. And it's very unfortunate that many, many people just don't, don't know. Now, that too has changed too with the internet. I mean, you can Google, call Dr. Google and right, find right. out, you know, lots of things. Of course, I can work the other way because people can make their own diagnosis at home and be way off and do more damage than good. Um, but I, I think that, um, I think it's communication both ways is so important. And also veterinarians, uh, we need to learn how to listen a little bit better too. One of the great things about zoo veterinarians and the, the practice of zoo veterinary medicine is you've got your, these keepers. And these keepers are your ears and your eyes and your smell. And they are because they are with these animals every day and they have the same passion that the zoo vets have. And so a zoo veterinarian will rely on those keepers to, um, you know, communicate so much that the animal can't communicate. So it's, it's getting better. Well, that's good. That's cool. And yeah, it's, it's awesome that you were able to reach so many people, you know, in one go. That's, that's very cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um, is there anything else that you want to tell me about your illustrious career or, <laughs> you know, AAZV or wild animal health fund or any of that good stuff? Um, yeah, I can share, um, uh, with you that I was very close friends with Betty White. Oh, nice. Um, I met her in 1988. Actually, I, I interviewed her on the TV show. She was coming to Morris Animal Foundation. She was a trustee of Morris Animal Foundation. And I met her and interviewed her there. And then when I started working for Morris Animal Foundation three, days, three years later, um, Betty and I became very good friends. And I, part of that is because Betty knew my passion for animals and she had the same passion for animals. And she, um, um, I think the other thing that she enjoyed about her relationship with me was I was not Hollywood at all. And she would come to Denver a day early and I'd put her in the car and we'd go up in the mountains and go look for bighorn sheep or for mountain goats or for pika or whatever. Um, and she, relayed to me on many occasions we would um there would be a, a donor for morris animal foundation in new york city and and they would want betty to go see this person with me so i did a lot of traveling with betty for a lot of public appearances and what have you and she could spot a person who didn't have quite the passion um, that you would expect. And, and the comment was that she, she'd say, well, I don't, it's not that I don't trust them. It's just that I want to watch them. <laughs> I know? like that. I like that. And I think that, um, of course, everybody listening to this podcast is a animal lover, right? I mean, so we don't have to we're preaching to the choir here, <laughs> but I think, um, one of the things that the, that the listeners, um, might want to do is to try to, show their love for the animals amongst people, all people, all your friends, and even the ones that might not like 
the dogs that much or might not like your cat that much. Um, but share what you can with them to get them to know them because if you can't, this planet's in trouble. And if you can't identify with the animals and the plants uh, that are out there and commit to doing something about it, then we're really in trouble. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. You know, it's funny. Um, I was talking to a friend who is is a fan of the podcast and we've become friends. Um, and we had this idea that – and I don't know how you do this, but maybe this is something that you and I could talk about like off air and maybe make happen. But of making like an actual like Betty White Day type thing where like for her birthday, we would encourage people to donate to zoos and Wild Animal Health Fund and all those because that's what she did and that's what she was passionate mm -hmm. about. And mm -hmm. I'm amazed that nothing has happened yet, but maybe it just takes someone like me and you and to get, we get together and we can make that happen. Um, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Right. I, um, you know, when, um, I was devastated, of course, I, we used to do Thanksgiving with Betty every year oh. and what have you. And, uh, I got the news on the last, on Christmas, uh, New Year's Eve and I was devastated and I turned around two days later when I got into the office and made a substantial donation to the Wild Animal Health Fund in Betty's name. And some of the animal shelters around, because every time we'd be on a trip somewhere and there'd be a, a trip to an animal shelter, of course, uh, and, and she would always leave a check with them and and what have you. And some of the animal shelters have picked up on on this deal. And, and the, the saying is, be like Betty. Right, right. And so January 17th is Betty's birthday. And if we could get a national movement going on, that people would um, make a donation, like you say, to any animal cause, the, the cause of your choice, mm -hmm. in honor of Betty White. Um, Betty would be looking down on that smiling big time. All right. Well, let's uh, let's make this happen. I think between you and the team here knowing how to do stuff and me being energetic and loud, we could probably make this into a thing. So let's, let's aim for yeah. that. I love yeah. that. Awesome. Cool, cool, cool. We will connect more on that. I promise you. Um, and now to completely change the tone. It's time now, don't you know? We've come to the end of the show. But there's one tale left to go. You're gonna laugh and say, oh no. It's time for the Rossifari poop story. What do you have for me? <laughs> don't step in it. <laughs> and when people say, uh, you know, I tell people that when I am reincarnated, I'm probably going to come back as a dung bug. Oh, nice. Okay. Yeah. Because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, all, you don't have nothing to worry about. Don't pay taxes or anything <laughs> like that and just roll it around. You know? <laughs> yeah, I don't uh, – um, I've gotten in trouble before. Um, I, uh, I just, just a real quick story about in the, in the newsroom, I was doing a story on how to get your horse ready for this, for the summer, for the riding season. And there's a big, large animal clinic, uh, south of Denver called Littleton Large Animal Hospital. And it's an equine clinic. And I called him up. I said, can I come over and film a story on what you need to do to get your horse ready? And they said, yes. And then the producer said, Rob, I want you, we want you to do a live shot when this airs next Friday. And I said, okay. So I called him up again and I said, can I come down? I need a, a horse, a, a pretty good, well-trained horse. And, uh, they, they said, uh, uh, sure. Come on down for that. So we went down there and they set up the live truck and, um, I had the horse and I'm holding the reins to, 
to introduce the story. And it's a close-up of, a fairly close-up of, of a vignette of just me and the horse's head. And I referred to the reins as his leash. I said, because <laughs> peop, people know I was a small animal veterinarian, right? <laughs> so I'm holding the horse's leash. And then the story ran. And then I got up on the horse and I told the photojournalist, I said, I want you to be tight just on my head and then pull out to where you can see the whole horse and me. And um, the line I had was something like, so all you have to do is be, it has some common sense, horse sense, and you and your horse will have a very happy summer. Giddy up. And as he's pulling out, you realize that I'm on the horse backwards. (laughs) And I took off into the sunset backwards. When I got to the studio, the uh, newsroom director met me in the back, at the back door. He said, Dr. Rob, you shouldn't have done that. And I said, why shouldn't I have done that? He said, you should have asked permission. I said, Mike, if I'd asked you permission, what would you have said? He said, <laughs> I would have said no, because you, you, know, you could fall off or this and that. And I said, well, that's why I didn't ask you. I said, was it good television? He said, yeah, it was great television. <laughs> High five and that kind of thing. Because, you know, you get people talking about the crazy things that you do and more people are going to view tune in next week to see what crazy Dr. Rob's going to do. So <laughs> That's a lot of fun. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. It's my pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing. It's, um, you know, we talked about communication and man, you're right on it. Thank, thank you. you so much. love Dr. Rob so much. He's such a cool guy and um, just really an inspirational person. Uh, At the beginning, when I said that thing about the AZA, I'm not kidding, y'all. Dude looked like he thought I was going to uh, tackle him or, or possibly had been sent to finish him. It was hilarious. Then you could see the recognition. But um, I am, this is going to shock y'all, loud and gregarious. And when I get excited, I get really excited. So I do not blame him for uh, reacting that way, but it did make me laugh. And uh, y'all be like Betty Day. It's gonna be a thing. We're figuring out how to make it a thing. We're, we're looking at a bunch of different channels and a bunch of different people uh, that have created things we've talked to. And it's it's been a cool process so far and a slow process so far. But um, we're going to ramp it up and we're going to celebrate Betty White's birthday by encouraging the world to give to any animal thing, whether it's shelters or zoos or aquariums or the Wild Animal Health Fund, which obviously uh, we've talked about on here a bunch, but y'all need to be checking out if you haven't yet. It's it's really cool. So look forward to Be Like Betty Day becoming a big deal. And uh, y'all, with that said, I think uh, there are only two more things to say, one of which is that I want to say thank you to my Red Panda-level patrons, Laura Shank, Kristen Dickey, and Stephen Williamson, and to all of my other patrons as well for supporting the pod. And the other one is that the word credits backwards is Stiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Rossi. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.